I found out during the last service that uh, doing an introduction for a, a, a sermon when you don't know the people really well is a lot different than doing the introduction to a sermon for people that you've loved for a decade, um, especially when you've never had a chance to do it. Wow, I teared up in the last one. I was like, man, I'm going to get it together for this second one. Whew. All right. Um, so really what the word that comes to mind as I stand here um, is joy. Um, it's joy from being able to just be here with you, even if I wasn't standing up here. It would just be joy to be here. Um, as Ben was saying, I mean, he's given me far too much credit there. I, I, I think that, but at the same time, he's on to something. Uh, it wasn't, it's not me that, would, that makes him, or that helped shape him into the, the follower of God that he is, but it's all of us. And I'm the, I'm the biggest recipient in this room of grace because of all of you. Um, so, ooh, let's move on. All right. So it would be helpful if my introduction wasn't sort of similar to what I just did. All right. So I mean, needless to say, joy is just overflowing right now. Um, and I'm so glad to be here. You ha- y'all have no idea how great it is to see you. Um, I hated that I had to miss the 10-year celebration uh, I, I thought long and hard about how to, how to condense um, 10 years worth of, worth of experiences into a, a several-minute video and ended up not doing a video. Um, but I'm really thankful for the opportunity just to be able to express, even if it has nothing to do with the sermon that I'm going to preach, uh, which I hope it does a little bit, but um, just to be able to say what this church means to me. Um, so I've, I've thought... Especially in light of the fact that, I mean, I've been away now for about seven months. Um, I've thought of, if, if I had the opportunity to speak, what I, what I wanted to say, and what always comes to mind is, is Paul's, um, Paul's encouragement to the Philippian church in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. Um, so Amanda and I, we, we pray for this church often. We remember this church often in our prayers. And that's a testimony of God's grace that we're constantly thinking about y'all. Because that's God's grace in your lives, and it's an evidence that He is at work in your so at work in your lives that we could be we could be absent from the body, but we're present together because of Christ. We're partners in the gospel. We serve a faithful Savior. And our prayer is that treasuring Christ would grow more and more in how you love one another and how you love the world. Because if you grow more to love one another, just even, even any more than you already do, the impact that you made on us is going to pale in comparison with how you're going to impact one another in the future and how you're going to impact the world for Christ. So I understand, though, that y'all are recently coming out of a, out of a Philippian study, um, and I, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave without mentioning that, but I also I wouldn't dare try to preach something that one of the elders here have preached because um, y'all, would be, y'all would be a little disappointed, I think. Um, but treasuring Christ is where we saw the church transform for us from a religious checkoff box to family, to community, to a way of life. We were challenged to think hard and often on the gospel and how it pertains to everyday life. We learned, we weren't, we learned new words that aren't in the dictionary, like gospeling, um, we saw the gospel lived out by men and women who were not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at what it means to be a doer of the word. So what does that mean? Being a doer of the word, it, it's as simple as you live out the faith that you proclaim. You are who you say you are. And if I could venture a guess, I would say that most of you if you were to really evaluate honestly your life and, and, and how you're walking with Christ right now, I would say 90 to even, I don't think it would be a bad guess to say 100% of you would say you're not where you would like to be in your walk with Christ. What is that saying? That's saying that you're not doing the word as you feel like God is calling you to do the word. So there's a disconnect somewhere. So we want to we try to address those disconnects today. So if you want to go ahead and turn over to the book of James, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. 
We're actually going to use verse 18 to springboard into our text a little bit. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one nearby uh, on the row. So if you're, if you're visiting with us, you don't have a Bible, or if you just forgot your Bible today, uh, ask a neighbor. They would love to give you one. Um, and I think, I'm pretty sure that the church still has free Bibles available as a gift. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, gifts are awesome because of the free. Um, so to understand where we're going to be today, you of course have to understand what's going on in the book of James up to this point. Um, that's the one thing about a sermon like this is, is you kind of just jump into the pool and it's nighttime and you have no idea what's in the pool. So you may be jumping on a pool noodle. Um, but you want to you have a, a picture of what's going on. So James, he's the brother of Jesus. He's a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And after Jesus' death, he's writing to a group of people who used to practice the Jewish religion. These are culturally Jewish people. They have, a, they have a national identity and a religious identity, but they gave up their religious identity to follow Jesus. These are the first, these are the first Christians. So the Christians, they're scattered and dispersed throughout the known world. They're facing persecution and trials, not only from the government, but also from the people they used to call family and friend and brother. And what they're doing is James is writing to real people with real problems who are struggling to live rightly in the midst of severe opposition. So he's writing to real people with real problems. It kind of rings home, right? We're real people. We have real problems. So James's first call, if you, if you, and I would, I would encourage you to go back and look at chapter 1 in context and more in context than what I'm going to be able to, to do today. But his first call to the people, and as he, he affectionately calls these people uh, beloved brothers um, throughout the book, is to expect that their faith is going to be tested as they face trials. Trials are going to come. And he encourages them that though, though God is the one testing, he's doing so that their faith can grow, that their faith in him would, would be strengthened. So one of the things as you read or you listen to James, it's a desire for believers to have a faith grounded in Jesus that leads to a life that reflects Jesus. Amen. Before we read our text today, let us, let's springboard into the text by reading verse 18. So verse 18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what's he saying? What's he saying there? Well, he's saying that God, of his own good and perfect design, he calls forth and he gives life to spiritually dead people. We can all identify with that too. Uh, we would all affirm that at one point prior to Christ, we were spiritually dead, unable to save ourselves, unable to even take one spiritual breath. But he gave life. He brought us forth by the word of truth. We were self-seeking, self-glorifying. We would do nothing to gain or to merit God's favor. To be given life is what's meant by he brought us forth by the word of truth. But why? Why did he bring us forth? So that we can continue to be self-seeking, continue to be self-glorifying, continue to build kingdoms for ourselves here on earth? That, that is not the case. That is not the answer, and it can't be the answer. No, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave us life so that we can be, the, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, that, that blesses you, because what in the world does that mean? In other words, it means so we can be doers of the word. We can be God-glorifying instead of self-glorifying. We can be... Instead of being uh, self-seeking, we can become self-sacrificing. But all for the purpose of, of not making ourselves look good, but for making Him look good. So keeping that verse in mind, we're going to let that springboard into our passage. So our passage is, verses, uh, is verse 19 through 27. So read with me. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like or was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, 
he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. God, your word is living and active. And we praise you that when we come and we celebrate you in a service like this, when we come and we open up your word, that it is able to pierce. It is able to convict. It's not my words that convict. I pray against that, Father. I pray that it, would be, that it wouldn't be anything, um, anything that I say or any illustration or any, um, any allegory or any kind of imagery that would, that would spur someone on to, to be convicted over sin or to, to want to run to Christ, uh, but it would be your word. Father, let us be lovers of your word. Lovers of your word that become doers of your word. So be with us today. Give us eyes to see. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So um, I've, got, I've got three, um, I guess, the direction that I want to take us. Uh, and I see three things from the, from the passage that I want to point out. Um, if you look at verses 19 through 21, let me read those real quick. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The first point I want to make is that, believers, we are called to put off wickedness and to put on Christ. We're called to to put off wickedness and we're called to put on Christ. So we we all have our differences. Every single one of us is different. Uh, If anybody's a science person, uh, you know we all have DNA and all of our DNA are different. No, no two people are alike. And that science person is going to correct me here and say, um, well, what about twins? And I would say, you're right. Twins have the same. If you're identical twins, you have same, same DNA, but you ruined my analogy. Um, but we are all different. We differ in our life experiences. We differ uh, in our, uh, we come from different cultures. We have different family dynamics. And we come from various economic situations. Some of us come from poor families. Some of us grew up in middle-class families. Some of us had, um, had a lot growing up. So, and the differences go on and on and on. But we do have many things in common. And one of the things I want to I show you from this is that um, James is trying to point out a commonality, something that's common to all of us. So James warns, he says, be slow to speak and slow to anger. You think about, think about anger, anger that wells up. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but anger, I mean, if I was to ask for a show of hands, if you, were, if you had become angry or frustrated or any of those synonyms we use for anger, I don't think there would be a hand that, was, that would be down from being angry this week. Um, we, all, we all struggle with it. So what he wants us to see is anger is a sin that's common to us all. We all struggle with it. Because when we think about that, it turns our minds quickly to the idea that we all struggle with sin. So the point is we're using sin to broadcast very widely to, hey, we're all sinners. Not just struggling with anger, but struggling with lust or identity or, uh, or with pride or, or whatever, whatever you want to say. We're all sinners. So his wise counsel, he does offer wise counsel for, for those struggling with anger. He says, um, he says, angry person, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. So what are we quick to hear? What is the angry person supposed to do? How is the believer struggling with sin, if we're going to look outwardly or look widely, how is the the believer struggling with sin supposed to respond? He answers that question in verse 21. Look at verse 21. We are to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's where he says all, right? doesn't just say put away angry filthiness. He puts put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, if you're anything like me, you're the type of person who you, you like to not only just understand how to do something, if, if you tell me how to do something, I would, my, my first question would be, well, why? I don't know if y'all are like me, but that's me. I, I want to know the why. Why are we supposed to put away all filthiness that it talks about in the previous verse? He, or he talks about. Look in the previous verse. He says in verse 20, this answers our why question. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why do we put away wickedness? Because our goal as believers is to produce the righteousness of God in our lives. 
We put away wickedness to produce the righteousness of God. We have a purpose and a mission. So what produces the righteousness of God? Is it something that you can just muster up the strength to do? Is it something that you can just pull your bootstraps up and be righteous? No, we would say, and we would, Scripture would accord with this, that the righteousness of God is produced in a believer as he or she receives with meekness the implanted word. What results is that believer is then quick to hear what? The, the implanted word. The believer is quick to hear the implanted word, slow to speak in an effort to build up instead of tear down, and slow to become angry. So zooming out to our common struggle, we look at sin and we see that the righteousness of God is produced in believers who sin, who are sinners, as we begin to put away that sin. It's not we become righteous while holding on tightly to the sin that binds us. We, we put it off and then we put on. So what does it mean to put away? Because it says put away there. And that idea of put away can be a tricky it can be a tricky thing for us because a lot of us want to, uh, we want to, to define put away in terms of uh, liken it to a, you, do, you do laundry. Um, if you do laundry at home, uh, you fold your laundry, you put it on the dresser, um, and then you, in, my, in our house, my wife puts away her, her clothes right then into the dresser, and then three days later, mine are still sitting there, and I eventually, after being, being pressed into service, I put my clothes away. Um, What's the purpose in putting them into the dresser? Well, it's to wear them again. We don't, we don't put on our clothes, put them in the washing machine just to toss them. We, we put them in our dresser to put them away because we plan and we tend, we intend on using those, those very same clothes again. So we have that intention. But to say that James is saying that we're storing it away, is, it isn't the idea that he's trying to convey. He doesn't want you to come away thinking that you put away wickedness by inserting it into a drawer only to pull it back out. That's not what he's saying. It's meant to be understood as you take it off, kind of like you remove and you discard clothing. It would be like me taking this shirt. Uh, I, I see that this, this shirt is, is atrocious, and I, I take it off, and I throw it down and ask the nearest brother to take it out to a garbage can, light it on fire, and get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Get rid of it. But then, in that moment, what happens is everybody in here starts clamoring for me to get another shirt because we're not meant to be unclothed, especially me in front of everybody. <laughs> so we put, on, we put on something. We put off in order to put on. We let go of wickedness in order to grasp hold of something else. So what do we put on? We put on the implanted word. Specifically, James says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now the question is, how can you receive something if you already own it? So receive with meekness. Look at the wording. <coughs> Excuse me. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Okay, so where's the word? It's implanted. The word's already in us. How do you receive something that's already inside of you? But do you, see what, do you see the implications of what James is saying here? Who is he writing to? He's writing to believers, saying, put away, put away your wickedness. He's writing to believers and he's saying, put off your old ways and put on what you already have. You've already been given Christ, put him on. But what we do is we insist on wearing, and this is just to use the clothing analogy some more. What we do is we insist on wearing that ratty stained t-shirt. You know, the one that has the yellowing in the arms, right? That crusty hat. This is guys. I'm in this camp. That crusty hat that should have been thrown away a long time ago. The sweatpants that are now more sweat than pants. <laughs> or the socks that only hold eight of your toes and, you know, they smell the same leaving the gym as they do coming out of the washer. We do those things. We, we like those clothes because they feel good. It's what defines us. That's who we are. That's our identity. But the thing is, is that we've been gifted a designer suit or a designer dress. We've been, we've been given the most expensive suit. And the thing is, is that it's sitting in our closet. 
It's already in our possession. It's still got the tags on it. All we have to do is remove the tags and put it on. But that's our problem. We store away these clothes. We store away anger until anger conveniently rears its ugly head when our will is crossed and we don't get our way. We like the way that lust makes us feel in the moment. It's easy to steal away the glance. Nobody knows. Nobody sees your mind. It's easy. Going to that website is just like slipping on the old hat. It's putting on the hat. And, that's, and for many of you, that's all it is to you, is I'm just putting on a hat. You view it in wardrobe terms and not eternity terms. We covet others' approval and we find our identity in how we're viewed by others, leading us to want more stuff and loftier positions. And it's okay as long as we keep telling ourselves that the stuff and the titles, those things don't control us. We just keep telling ourselves that. We like the way the bitter thoughts make us feel because those bitter thoughts, it's like having an argument in your head and you win those arguments all the time and that's the best argument to be in, right? But what we have to realize is we have to stop playing dress up with clothes that belong in the trash, with clothes that should be burned. You have something better. So believers, put off anger. This is the point. Put off anger. Put on self-control. Put off pride. Put on humility. Put off bitterness. Put on forgiveness. Put off blame shifting. Put on responsibility. Put off boasting. Put off esteeming others. Put off lust. Put on pure desires. Put off complaining and put on gratefulness. Put off laziness and put on diligence. Put off inferiority and put on your position in Christ. All of these things are possible because you've been brought forth by the word of truth. Jesus died so that putting off wickedness and putting on righteousness is not only a possibility, but it's an expectation on you, believers. So thinking about that, Jesus died. When we remember something like that, that is transformational, that Jesus died for that purpose. But that's not the full story. This leads me to my second point. Believers, we're called to actively remember the gospel. Let's look at verses 22 through 25 together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres. He will be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. So, like I said, Jesus died. Jesus died as life transforming. But that's not the whole story, and we know that's not the whole story. And it's here where I have to give a reminder that what we're about to, the, the waters that we're about to venture into is gospel. Everything we've been talking about is gospel. And just a warning for you. If during the middle of this, and I know that I'm not the most dynamic speaker in the world, but if the gospel itself, no matter the speaker, doesn't move your heart to joy, then there's an issue. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes talking about gospel. And I, I love the fact that gospel is foundational here at the church, here at Treasuring Christ. We have to remember the gospel isn't something that we get past. The gospel is not elementary doctrine. The gospel is doctrine. It's all doctrine. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the news that there, was, that there is one holy and all-powerful God who created everything out of nothing. And, he, and everything he created was good. This, including, this included man. man. He made man in his image and it, and, it, and it was good. He made man and woman and he gave them everything they needed for life and to make him happy. But he only restricted one thing. He only gave him one restriction. But man desired more than what God had given. Man wanted to be like God, so he disobeyed, and we call this sin. And because God is holy and man is sinful, holy is just another word for saying perfect. Because God is perfect and man is not perfect, a separation is formed. A, bri a, a bridgeless cavern, or is it cavern? A bridgeless divide that you can't cross. Nobody can cross. So there's a separation. There's no hope. 
At this point, man deserves nothing good from God, but God gives them something good anyway. What does this show about God? It shows that God is good, right? We're talking about making God look good. We're making God look good because he already looks good. So he gives them a promise. He says, I'm going to send one who's basically going to bridge this gap because you can't. We've got this promise. We know that God doesn't lie. And he did send someone. He didn't, just, he, just, he didn't choose some person randomly. He preordained and preplanned that he would send himself. He would send Jesus to come and take the sin away, to bridge the gap so that we can know him. Jesus lived a holy and obedient life. The life that God had originally intended for man, Jesus lived it. Which meant that he never did anything wrong. He never did anything that, des- that deserved the wrath of God or the wrath of man. But he willingly submitted himself to man and to God and went and died a cro- death on a cross. And in that moment, he took the wrath that was, that was deserved by all of us, that was deserved by all of us. And so that bridge, that, that, that gap, that separation is no longer a separation for those who would trust in Christ. Romans 10, 9 and, says, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This, this, this is the gospel, and this isn't past tense. You see the wording. Look at the wording. This is ongoing tense. Believe, confess, believe, repent, all of these things. This is the good news. And the, the great thing is we're talking about actively remembering the gospel. If you want to know God, God has given you his word. God has given you everything you need to know him. And it's all we need. Now, I do want to, I do want to say I see two things or two ways that we actively remember the gospel in these verses. The first way is that we remember the gospel by, gaze, by, by uh, gazing intently into it. Let me repeat that because I stumbled on it. We remember the gospel by gazing intently into it. The second thing is we remember the gospel by rehearsing it to ourselves. So look at verse 25 with me. <coughs> verse 25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, so looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, this isn't just a casual glance. <coughs> It's an intent gaze. Looking intently is, this, is just a strong way of saying something like to investigate or to study or to gaze on or to, or to or the way our translation says it is to, to look into. But it's not just a casual thing. And we've all done this whether we realize it or not. We've intently gazed in our lifetimes. Whether or not we've done it at the word or not or to the word or not, we have done it and we have experienced it. We know what it's like. If you've ever been to the beach or the mountains, you've experienced that feeling. It's like a time standstill feeling where you glance out over the horizon as the sun is meeting the, the horizon over the, over the water and you just stand in awe. And what do you do in those moments? You're captivated. You study it. You, you're counting down the seconds as the sun disappears. Or if you've ever gone to the mountains, you stand up on the mountains. And I have a mountain story in a second. But you stand up on the mountains and for most of you, you're looking out at miles and miles and miles of trees and terrain and elevation changes and snow-capped peaks and eagles and, and hawks and all these, all these animals soaring. And you, you just see these amazing, amazing sights and you're, you're captivated. Now, Amanda and I, just to, give, just to give a little bit of teeth to this, Amanda and I went to uh, Denver last year. Uh, it's my first time ever really seeing mountains. I've seen mountains before, but those were like hills compared to, compared to the mountains out uh, in the Rocky Mountains. Um, but I remember we went up um, on this mountain called Mount Evans, and it's the, it's the highest peak that you can drive a car up, because you know I'm not going to climb a mountain. But it's the highest peak that you can drive a car up. And they didn't tell us, and, and another thing you need to know about me is I'm terrified of heights. I'm literally I'm petrified when it comes to high places. Um, and so they don't, they don't tell you that there's no guardrails, um, and they don't tell you that, well, they shouldn't have to tell you how high it is. But they really should. Um, but I remember, I remember we get to the top and Amanda's just in her element. She's loving it. I mean, she's up there just spinning, you know. It's like she's looking around, gazing at everything. And she's standing near the edge. And I'm, I'm like, 
in, those, in that moment, it, I'm like, she's, she's loving this. She's, she's studying this. She wants to always remember this. And there I am, about 10 feet from the edge, looking down at the rock, gazing intently at the cracks. And I'll steal glances. And I, that's why we take pictures of these things, because it's easier to take pictures. Um, but I could tell you all about the cracks in the stone. I could tell you about the speckles and the way it looks, or the lizard that crossed my path, or any of those things. But that's, that's gazing. Like, she was taking in beauty. She was taking in... Um, God's creation. She was taking in every, every detail that she possibly could. And that's what James is saying. That's what his call to us is. If the word of truth has been implanted within you, you receive it and you can do it by actively gazing upon it. You can't do the gospel unless you are in the gospel. Are you a lover of the word of God? This is the perfect law, the law of liberty, that frees you from doubt, from despair, from empty attempts to find meaning. And the more we actively gaze upon the gospel, the more God looks good, and the more we want to make our good God known. Let me say that again. The more we actively gaze upon the gospel, the more God looks good, and the more we want to make our good God known. So the second way we actively remember the gospel is by rehearsing it to ourselves. We remember by remembering. And to borrow Pastor Sean's phrase, that blesses you, doesn't it? We remember by remembering. But we don't walk around with, with the Bible stuck in our face, always, always at a moment's notice we can whip it out and, and read, or even with our Bible apps on our phones. We don't, we don't do that. That's what James is trying to show the early church that he's writing to. Don't be like the man who goes away from the word and forgets what the word says. Gaze intently at the gospel and remember with gospel intentionality. Now, I recently took a group of youth from the, the church that we're at to a youth choir conference. And I know this is a dangerous, this is dangerous ground. <coughs> Excuse me. I know this is dangerous ground because many of you stood beside me in here as we, as we sing and as Ben as Ben plays and sings and the band does their thing, and you, you've, you understand that some of us make joyful noises and some make noises that are joyful. Um, and I'm, I don't know, I'm not, in the, I'm not in the joyful noise camp, I guess. But when I was there, and completely out of place, I might add, um, I began to see some things. I was at the rehearsal time, and, this, and the, the concept of rehearsing is just natural when you're talking, we're at a youth choir rehearsal. They would go to these things every day. It was a group of about 900 or so teenagers. And if they were even a little off of their key or their pitch or their melody, which I confirmed with Ben in the last service, those are the right words, um, the conductor guy, he would stop everything and he would make them focus on that tiny aspect in order to get it right. He would stop everything, stop the whole flow of the song and make them rehearse it. Because they had a mission and a purpose. The mission and the purpose of them, them going on this trip and them singing these songs was to make a CD that was going to go out to missionaries worldwide and to encourage them and their families. So they had a mission and a purpose. So it hit me in those moments, one, that that guy was really annoying, but he needed to be. And that rehearsal is tedious. Rehearsal is work, but it's necessary. Now, as exhausting as that was for the students, they needed that rehearsal to accomplish their purpose. What you have in the Bible, what you have, and I love this, there was a video recently from Desiring God talking about the Word, and they said, this is not, if you, if you were to put this up on the wall, the Word is not a portrait that you're looking at that displays some lifeless um, piece of art. But what the Word is, the Word is a window a window through which we can see God, that we can know more about Him. We can know what He likes, know what displeases Him. We can, know, we can know the God who created the universe, and He invites us to do so. But because we, always, we don't always have the Word at our fingertips, because we're not always gazing through that window directly, we have to rehearse it. We have to see it as a guidebook. We have to see it as... It's, it's, it's not always going to be there. 
I love, there's, there's a scene from, from the, uh, a book in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Silver Chair, um, written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, it's a, a fiction, uh, it's a work of fiction where um, he's basically making a, it's a, it's a fiction Christian story pretty much. Um, but in The Silver Chair, uh, these two, this little boy and this little girl, they are in our world and they're transported to another world by this Christ figure. His name is Aslan. So they're transported to this other world, and this is the world that um, every, every story takes place in this, in this world that they're transported to, and there's a land within this world called Narnia. They're not transported to that world, but they're transported on top of a high, high mountain. This mountain is, is kind of like the mountains I was telling you about, but higher. It makes everything else pale by comparison. Well, at some point, they're playing a game of bravery, the boy and the girl. They get too close to the edge, and the boy ends up falling off. Well, it's not kind of, it's not gory and graphic or anything like that because the Christ figure steps in and he whisked the boy on a breath to the land of Narnia safely. So basically he's just transported on the wind sort of thing. And then he has a, he has a conversation with the girl. And as he has a conversation with the girl, he tells, him, he tells her, you've been brought to, to this land for a purpose. You have a mission. There's something that I want you to accomplish that you have to accomplish. And I'm going to give you signs that are going to help you on your way. And then he, then he says, he tells her the signs, and he says, now repeat the signs back to me. So she repeats them, and she messes up a little bit. He says, all right, let's do it again. Repeat them again. And he, he makes her repeat it until she has it well enough to where he feels confident sending her, sending her on her way. And then he says, before he, before he whisks her away after the boy, he says this, and there should be a quote behind me. This is Aslan, the Christ figure speaking. He says, but first, remember Remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Y'all see the picture here? All right, I'm looking at my word. I'm having my quiet time. I'm on the mountain. I'm reading the word. It's clear. It's clear how I'm supposed to be a doer of the word. It's laid out clearly how I'm supposed to, how I'm supposed to live, how I'm supposed to love. We set the Bible down. We go to work. And what happens when we get to work? We didn't do something right the day before, and our boss brings it up. The air is getting a little thick. What happens is, is we, we begin to forget so what we need in those moments is we need to, we need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves. We, rehearsing in the moment where the air is thick is hard. <coughs> Let me go on. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important to know them by heart and to pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. When you wake up in the morning, when you lie down to sleep at night, when you wake up in the middle of the night, rehearse the gospel. Because life is going to throw curveballs. Life is going to beat you as a, wave, as a wave beats against the rocks. And that's when it's hard to remember. That's when it's hard to remember that it's a window. It looks more like a portrait on the wall. How in the world does this apply to the situation? Because we're being beaten in those moments. The air grows thick, as Aslan would say. Our minds become muddled. And what happens when our minds become muddled? We forget our purpose. But we do have a purpose. And this leads me to my third point. So believers... We're called to showcase faith in genuine and impactful ways. We're called to showcase faith in genuine and impactful ways. Let's look at verses 22 and then verses 26 through 27. So verse 22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now let's skip down to verse 26. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, ultimately, what we're talking about today is how believers are supposed to receive and respond to the Word of God. The Word that is implanted is implanted, it's implanted with a purpose. Now, verse 22 is probably, if you had to pick a theme verse from the book of James, verse 22 is probably it. Everything seems to flow out from verse 22. Everything applies. If you, if you take it back to verse 22, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Your life, if it's been transformed by becoming a follower of Jesus, what it's saying has to be a life of action. As James would say, he said he calls them beloved brothers and sisters. So that's what we're going to say. We're going to keep with that. It should be our joy to make Jesus look good by showcasing our faith in genuine and impactful ways. Now, what I see James doing in verses 26 and 27 is offering several ways, three in particular, in which the readers, the early church, us, can live out our faith. So look at verse 26. It says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the first thing, first question, do you control your tongue? Second thing, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What does this have to do with anything? Well, do you care for those in this world that are considered helpless? The point behind it is caring for those who don't have the ability to care for themselves. And the third is from verse 27. And keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you fight to keep yourself unstained from worldly influences? From the, from the, from the wardrobe that you, you, that you are holding on to? Are you fighting against that? Now James spends the rest of his letter unpacking those things. That's pretty much what the rest of, the rest of James is. is all right, he, he lays a basis. Now he's going to walk you through how to do those. But it's important that we take a second and we, we think about how... Receiving with meekness the implanted word leads to these sorts of actions. So let's look at the first. Do you control your tongue? So we can bridle our tongues because we have a new identity in Jesus. What used to flow out from our wicked hearts were words that tore down, words that set ablaze, words that only build us up. Now James spends a good portion of of chapter 3 talking about the impacts that our tongues can make. And he even goes as far as to say, if a man is able to bridle his tongue, he's going to be perfect in what he does. If he's able to not sin with his tongue, he's going to be sinless. This is the idea. <coughs> Excuse me. So let me ask you, when was the last time you said something that either intentionally or unintentionally caused hurt? Have you ever carefully chosen your words because you knew that those exact words in that exact moment were the exact thing that, was needed, that needed to be said in order to cut deeply? the person that you were talking to? Do you use your words to manipulate your circumstances or to make yourself look better in other people's eyes? Or just a simple one. Do you struggle with keeping things to yourself that should stay with yourself? Do you struggle with gossip? Those things, those are the nasty old sweatpants. That's the crusty old hat that you're holding on to. Now, as I was preparing this, I... I couldn't help but notice that my wife hates the word crusty. Um, when, I, when I said that illustration and I said crusty hat, you could see the, the cringe on her face. And in that moment, I was like, that's it. That's the exact response that we should have to sin. The same way she feels about my hats, she needs to think about sin. You weren't meant to put those things back in the drawer. You were meant to burn them, to get rid of them. They shouldn't even be named among you. But what flows out from a redeemed heart are words that reflect the implanted word. They're words that build up. They're words that promote peace. They're words that don't spotlight you anymore. They spotlight the goodness of God. Are you encouraging others? Are you praying with and for others? Do you point out evidences of God's grace as you see them in the lives of brothers and sisters? Are you quick to express gratitude and thankfulness in all circumstances? Are you quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? 
When someone praises you, are you directing that praise back to, the, to where it's due? Are you directing praise back to God? Let's look at the second one. Do you care for those in the world that are helpless? So we can care for the helpless because we've first been cared for. This is what the implanted word says. And this is what the implanted word shows us. We care for others. And this is an expectation. We care for others because we've been cared for. Remembering the gospel shows us that we too were once helpless. We too needed saving. So what used to flow out from our wicked hearts were actions that were self-serving and actions that were unjust. In chapter 2, he elaborates on the sin of partiality and unjustness. How we are called to have mercy and how we are to express our faith through serving others and treating our neighbors as ourselves. When was the last time you shared your faith with an unbeliever? Are you sacrificing your time and your money or your energy for those who are less fortunate, for those who are the quote-unquote helpless? He mentions orphans and widows, but that's the the point of that. And and we still have orphans and widows today, but the point is these were people who were helpless, that that, that would perish without assistance, that would perish without aid. Are you a voice or an advocate for someone who doesn't have the power to speak for themselves. The most immediate groups that come to mind are orphans, victims of sex trafficking, unborn children. Worldwide, there's approximately 153 million orphans. In North Carolina, North Carolina ranks in the top 10 in reported sex trafficking cases. These are reported cases. Majority happen in Raleigh and Charlotte. There were reported 23,000 abortions performed in North Carolina in 2013. These are the helpless. And sacrificially acting based upon the need of another, that's an evidence that you are receiving what is already yours. When you act, it's an evidence of your reception of the word. What you're doing is you're foregoing the comfort of the old sweatpants, the comfort of the shirt, and you're putting on the suit that you were meant to wear. Look at the third one real briefly. We're close to being done, I promise. Do you fight to keep yourself unstained from the world? We can fight that fight to keep ourselves unstained from the world because Jesus suffered on the cross, took on himself the full wrath of God, and died because we are stained. Jesus died so that the bonds of sin and, the wick- and wickedness can be put off. It's time to clean out the wardrobe. As we conclude, we need to go in and we need to evaluate what needs to go. But it's not easy. None of us would say that, we're, that we perfectly hear and do the word. I mentioned that in the introduction. But what's important is that you are making strides in your Christian life to put off wickedness and put on righteousness, that you're striving to love and remember the gospel and that you're showcasing a genuine faith in Jesus. As one last challenge, I want to share a brief story just from my life. In college, this is not like a super deep, you're learning something new about me, but in college, I had this fleece pullover hoodie. Amanda got it for me, I believe freshman year. I wore it all the time. That's what you would do is you put this thing on because... You woke up late for a class, and you didn't shower, so you just put on what's comfortable, and you'd go. So we get, we get married, and I kept wearing it all the time. After seven years of marriage, I came in one day to find that my loving wife had taken my beloved fleece sweater, fleece shirt, and placed it in her beloved trash can, and I never saw it again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You see, what she saw was something that I was either unwilling or unable to see. That hoodie was faded. That hoodie was stained. It was ripped. It smelled. And to be honest, the fabric was kind of napping together. Ever had a fleece shirt that long? You know what I mean? And although I was comfortable in being in the hoodie... 
she understood that this was something that needed to go because she definitely wasn't comfortable being with me when I was in the hoodie. I needed to move on. So what did she do? She bought me a new hoodie, something that was better. I wear it all the time. Probably do for another one. The point of this is, take a look around. And I'm being serious, like really look around. This, this is something that I take, that don't take this for granted. Being gone for seven months, really turn around and look at your brothers and sisters. I want to see heads moving, please. Like, take a look. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your church. These people love you. Invite them into your wardrobe. Invite them in. Invite them into your life. Because they're going to see things a lot more clearly than you do. To you, that's, that's your beloved shirt. That's your beloved hat. To them, they don't want to be seen with you when you're wearing it. If you feel comfortable where you are in your Christian walk, but you're not producing the fruit that it calls for Christians to produce, you're not living for God, you're not a doer of the word, you need to ask yourself some hard questions. In what ways am I like that hearer who forgets? What does it mean to be a hearer who forgets? What does it say if my life is not showcasing that I'm changed by Christ? What if, it, what if, it's, what if I'm okay wearing the, the socks with, that only hold eight toes? What, what does that say about me? Who am I reflecting? Who am I, who am I building up? Because there's not going to be any greater tragedy. There's going to be no greater tragedy than for you who lived your life believing that you were following Jesus to die, leave this life, and realize that you were deceiving yourself. There's no greater tragedy than that. Receive with meekness the implanted word and respond to the word with a life that makes God look good. We're going to have a time of the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. I want to invite anybody after the service, if you have any questions, or um, use, use the time during the Lord's service to to, to go and talk with a brother or sister, or even after the service, um, invite someone into your wardrobe. Be honest about that. We need to be honest about that. We don't need to shrug this off. This isn't just like a throwaway. I, I know that I'm just a pastor for the day, but my heart really is care and love for all of you. I've experienced enough with you, even if I didn't know you at all. But the thing is, is that I know you, and I love you. Let's pray. And as, as I'm praying, the band's going to come up and we're going to uh, enter into our Lord's service time. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we have been given the gospel. We have been given your words so that we can know you, so that we can love you. Not so that we can build our own kingdoms, not so we can continue to live the life that we once lived. And that's not an oppressive thing. You're not oppressing us by, by saying, you must live for me now. You're not. That's ridiculous. But it's, it's out of joy and thankfulness. Having no breath in our lungs, no spiritual breath at all, that you breathe breath in, and it's only natural that we'd want to live a life that's pleasing to you. Let us put off the filth that we're holding on to. Let us put off the wickedness and put on Christ. And as we do that, help us to remember the gospel and help us to live a life that, is, that showcases our faith in a genuine way. God, we thank you and we praise you. 